0: I had a grocery shopping outing on Wednesday. I went, and one of the things that we needed was um, black olives. We were having taco salad, and, and I was going to look for black olives. I ran into Chuck Bennett uh, at, at the grocery store up at Kroger, uh, or as Kroger's as my mom always said. Um, and and I was wandering around aimlessly, I'm sure, when I ran into Chuck, but I was in a hurry, uh, that's not a good combination, being in a hurry and wandering aimlessly trying to find olives. But uh, I ran into a guy there that works in, there, and he pointed me in the right direction. And sure enough, there's a big, on the aisle sign, it says olives. There's an olive section. I don't like olives, so I'm not interested. Uh, but there, there's so many olives, canned olives even. I mean, I know they have big fancy olive bars in some grocery stores, but... Uh, whole olives, sliced olives, chopped olives, and this is just black olives, so low sodium olives. I mean, uh, all kinds of brands and store brands and generics, and and it's just it's ridiculous the number of options that are available for canned black olives. Um, but generics, uh, uh, generic brands can can be ridiculous at times. I just just looking this week, I just was searching. Just kind of searched on generic brands. And, and the one that came up was the, I can't believe it's not butter. You've seen the little tub. And so there are all these knockoffs. And I wish I had the pictures to show you. It's just really funny because they use the same font and, and try to make it look the same. But but it's this. Could it be butter? Unbelievable. This is not butter. What? Not butter? I totally thought it was butter. Butter it's not. You'd think it's Butter is it butter? I mean, and there were others, but those were the, the ones I thought were more comical. Uh, one of my favorite beverages, as many of you know, is Dr. Pepper. Uh, it's, a, it's just part of coming from Texas, but, and, and I would say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So it's been, many people have tried to imitate uh, Dr. Pepper, obviously Mr. Pib, but all of the stores have their own. There's Dr. Thunder and Dr. Dazzle and Dr. Perfect and just on and on. I've It's been funny to see the different varieties of generics over the years of Dr. Pepper. But I'm a big fan of most generics, not the Dr. Pepper one, but um, you have something that's the same or at least similar in quality and taste and yet it's generally at a much lower price. This is why we love to shop at Aldi and many of you do. This is great. Uh, I am a big fan of generic medication, and and when I can go and they say, hey, we have a generic available for that antibiotic, like, ah yes, uh, I'll take it. It's uh, always a fraction of the cost. Generics are great for most things. They generally make good breakfast cereals, I've found, but they they do not make good saviors, um, and that's what we're seeing this morning in John one fourteen to eighteen that Jesus is not generic. And 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 he's not just the real thing, but there are com- and and, and he, there are also not comparable generics to Jesus, the real thing. He's not one of many. He's the he's the one and only. And and we see it twice explicitly in this passage in verse fourteen. It may not be as explicit in your translation as it is in the Greek text, but. Verse 14, he's the one and only son from the father. And I'll explain more why I'm translating it that in a moment. Verse 18, this is the bracket of this section. He's the one and only God. Jesus is without comparison. He cannot be knocked off. He is totally unique. There will never be a generic for the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ. It doesn't mean people won't try, and this is the, 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 this is why we have so many cults and so many false religions and so much idolatry. It's because they are attempts to, to, to create a generic Jesus, but a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible is no Savior at all. John MacArthur said, it's, it's as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. You, you can take a generic medication and be helped by it. You, you believe in a generic Jesus or a generic gospel and you'll be damned for eternity. There is no substitute. He has no equal. And John wants us to know this and he, this is the purpose. I've said it. We say it each week almost. The purpose of John, he wants us to see that Jesus and he, and Jesus alone is the Savior. He wants us to believe that Jesus himself, Jesus alone, is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in His name. And so this morning, as, as John concludes this prologue, the first 18 verses, and we're gonna pick up the pace in our study of John, but this, this, this first, this Uh, The prologue of John these first 18 verses is key to really understanding the whole of the gospel and 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 we're going to observe several truths in these verses this morning that just show us Jesus's uniqueness and so the first thing that we're going to see is his dramatic entrance into the world and the incarnation now. I don't know if this show is on anymore. I remember back in the days when we watched TLC, which is now I would call the ludicrous channel because it's just ridiculous, the things that are advertised. We used to watch Trading Spaces with the Hattons. Uh, first time we ever visited Baraka for a, a candidate kind of weekend, we were at the Hattons watching Trading Spaces on TLC. Um, I don't know why I just thought of that, but, uh, but I remember they, they had these, they, back in those days, they advertised like baby story and wedding story. I have not watched these, so don't revoke my man card this morning or anything. Um, but, but I guarantee on baby story, if it's still on or if it, if it's off, I don't know, but I guarantee you there was not a story of a birth that was as great as the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, it's not, it's without, Without parallel. That, that John though, he doesn't talk us, to us about the specifics of the birth. He doesn't tell us about Mary or Joseph or, or the angel or the shepherds or the heavenly host or Bethlehem or the manger. He doesn't tell us about any of those things. He give us, he gives us the incarnation, the birth of Jesus from 40,000 feet, really from, from the heavens perspective. And he tells us what was actually happening in those real historical uh, time and space events that are recorded in the other gospel accounts, and this is the thing we see. The first thing that we see that's so unique about Jesus here is that Jesus's incarnation will never know replication. It, it can't be duplicated. It can't be replicated. The Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was. We said John one one. The Word who was in the beginning. He was already existing. The Word who was with God. The Word who was God. The Word, uh, the the Word who through All things were created that were created. That word became flesh. And dwelt among us. I wish we could read this text as though we were hearing this or seeing this for the very first time. Because to get the power of that. John doesn't say the word became man. He doesn't say that the word took on a human body. He says the word became flesh that is a graphic shocking statement and it may be lost on us because of our familiar familiarity with it but i can guarantee it to john's first readers that just made them horribly uncomfortable the word became flesh the eternal word there was a heresy in john's day that was around and it had kind of you know, it was making an impact on the church, and it was starting to creep in and, and, and curry favor with believers, and and it was docetism, and the docetics they believed that 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 Jesus only appeared or seemed to be in human form, human, but he wasn't really human. He was his his human form was an illusion, a mirage, but John just demolishes that idea. And he comes with, with this this blunt statement that the Word, the eternal Word of God became flesh. He became a real flesh and blood human. And to say that he became flesh, it doesn't mean that Jesus in any way ceased to be what he was before. That's not what is being communicated. Rather, to his eternal deity, he, he took on and added perfect humanity. He didn't cease to be God. He was God in flesh. God incarnate. As we sing at Christmas time. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's what's happening. And this is the crazy thing about the incarnation. This is why the incarnation is regarded as the Scripture's greatest miracle. Even greater, greater than the resurrection of Christ. Some would say. Why? Because what Jesus did in becoming flesh Will last forever. The incarnation is irreversible. I didn't didn't know this. I didn't understand this. Before. I mean not before this week. But but growing up. I I thought somehow that Jesus came. And he took on flesh. And he was a man. And then when he went back to heaven. He went back to being spirit. But that is not the reality. The second person of the triune Godhead. The the. God the Son, the eternal Word, who existed from eternity past as Spirit. But in the Incarnation, He took on flesh and He never gave it up. He forever will exist as the God-Man. It changed eternity with, with a body of flesh and blood. He will always be clothed in flesh. That will always be the way that He is from now until eternity future. Fully God, fully man, united in one Person forever without confusion Between those two natures That's what the reality is Of the incarnation And no one No one can ever replicate that But that's just the first part And we're just getting going I realize He didn't just become flesh And then go back to be with the father And to reign from heaven The word became flesh And dwelt among us he dwelt among us to dwell means many of you know this to pitch a tent or to tabernacle It's temporary housing that doesn't mean that again that Jesus humanity was temporary, but it rather that his stay on earth was temporary. This word dwell is a is a word that is to evoke. Connotations from the Old Testament in the minds of his readers, including us, that it, it's, it's used in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, that portable kind of worship center of God's people Israel, where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. That's what's to come to mind, and using that word that's used of the tabernacle and connecting that with glory in the latter part of this verse. John wants us to make that connection. Just as the tabernacle was the place in the Old Testament. Where God dwelt with this people. And where his glory was seen. So Jesus is. We say Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew one twenty three. What a crazy thing. Wade was alluding to this. The word made flesh. The eternal word became flesh and actually dwelt among us what love to condescend to dwell among us the that the perfect all powerful all sufficient sinless eternal holy son of god would subject himself to hunger and thirst and weakness and fatigue and temptation and injustice and cruelty and exploitation and rejection and abuse and violence and death. He, he became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> that he would willingly enter into our sorrows and our sufferings. To become, as Isaiah 53 says, acquainted with grief. It is true, brothers and sisters, as Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, who has faced troubles and trials as we do, and yet without sin. Has a great comfort to us. The the incarnation of Christ, this reality of God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, changes everything. That He is not aloof. He is not distant from us in our sufferings. May that truth cheer our hearts. There are so many other implications of the incarnation, and we'll unpack those at Christmas. Um, I want to move on though. Second thing that we see that makes Jesus so unique. He said, Jesus bears the trademark of divine glory. Into verse 14, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what a trademark is. It's a name, a word, a symbol, a design or something that's used to distinguish goods. That this is authentic. This is the real thing. So you have the Nike swoosh and the Little Apple logo and Coca-Cola, whatever, Target. And, and we, we know. And so it's, that it's so that generics, like I can't believe it's not butter, that they can't, they can't actually say the same thing and pass their product as, as being something it's not. Well, the trademark of God is glory. It's the sum total of all His attributes, all of His perfections. It's it's a term that's reserved for God. It's His weightiness, His honor, His praise, His renown. And and Jesus Christ has revealed the glory of God. Jesus' glory wasn't revealed by, as we see at Christmas time often in religious artwork, as some little glowing halo around His baby skull. That was not how His glory was seen. Now, I am sympathetic to those that are trying to paint... Pictures like that, because how do you paint glory? But but in G- Jesus, the glory of God was seen. By whom? Who who is the we that we have seen His glory? It's the so as eyewitnesses, the apostles, including John, the, the writer of this gospel account, and other believers who saw Jesus during His earthly life. They saw His glory throughout His life and ministry. They saw His glory at the Transfiguration, preeminently. They, they saw it in his miracles that, that those who had eyes to see them, anyway. That in John 2:11, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. After turning water to wine, John says, "This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him." Before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said. In John eleven four, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he does miracles that show his glory. His glory is supremely and ultimately shown in, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we remember at the table this morning. That when Judas went out of the upper room to betray the Savior, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And yet Jesus' glory was was only seen by those, as I said, who had eyes to see it. And to see him for who he really was. His glory was veiled in flesh. It was his disciples, as we'll see in John 2.11, who believed in him. After Jesus, after Lazarus's resurrection, the the religious leaders just got more and more angry and 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 upped their uh, just desire to destroy Jesus. They were more seething with rage. They didn't believe. They didn't. The, the disciples saw glory, but they had eyes to see it. The, certainly, the glory of Christ's death and resurrection was lost on most people in that day. But the glory. John and others saw that it was, it was veiled, but they, they saw it. It was revealed in Christ. And the glory they saw was the glory of the only Son from the Father. Only begotten, your translation may say. And, but the, but the focus isn't so much on the begetting of Jesus, the, the birth that He was the Son of the Father, but it's the uniqueness of Jesus. Now I know we have, there's a, we could, spend the rest of our time talking about begotten, what it means to be begotten, and and oh, to be the only begotten. And there are many examples of scripture where we see what I'm about to tell you played out. And we don't have time to look at them all. Um, but the John's readers would have gotten it because this is just common language. They understood this. But what he means is that Jesus is the only or the unique son of God in a way that no one else is. He's the eternal Son, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, in essence. He's, a, we could say, a one-of-a-kind Son of God. That's what's being communicated by this expression. It's the glory of that one and only Son, of, son that they saw. We, we become sons of God through the new birth, but Jesus is uniquely the Son of God by His own nature. That's what's being communicated here. And then He says, He shows us what kind of glory we saw of the Son of God, of this one and only Son, and it was glory that was full of grace and truth. Now, it, the, the grammar indicates that the, the that expression, full of grace and truth, it seems to be modifying glory, not Christ Himself. Now, obviously, the glory was Christ, and so there, it's connected to Christ for sure. But uh, there was probably an Old Testament background that John has in mind as he's as he's writing this, and it's Exodus 33, 34. You can turn there if you want. Exodus 33, uh, and chapters 33 and 34, read a few verses there. But in, in verse 18 of Exodus 33, you remember Moses asked the question, or he really just begs God, he says, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to, I want to know and see your glory, God. The Lord, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, show it to me. And the Lord, what does He reply? Verse nineteen: I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God's glory then is supremely His goodness, and 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 so Moses then stands on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter thirty-four, and verse uh, verse five, and I want to read. More than I have in my notes here. Exodus 34 and verse 5, we're, we're told that the Lord descended, uh, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so. There are two crucial words that we see repeated throughout the Old Testament. It's that the Hebrew word is hesed and emet. Steadfast love as it's translated in the ESV. Or loyal covenant. Keeping love. And faithfulness. Or truth. And so... That pair of expressions, again, is found throughout the Old Testament. Grace, or steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And John uses this expression, full of grace and truth. And I think he's trying to capture those ideas. You have tabernacle, you have glory, you have this expression, grace and truth. The same glory that Moses saw when the Lord passed in front of Him was the same glory that John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. Jesus' glory was seen in the grace and truth of His person and work or the Gospel. And so He's full of grace. His glory is full of grace. He offers love and compassion to all sinners. There's no one beyond the reach Of God's grace. We need to hear that. And he's full of truth. That even when you don't know what else is true. You can know that Jesus is true. In him is truth. His glory is full of truth. You can trust his promises. All of them. You can trust him when he says. I will never leave you. Or forsake you. So Jesus is unique in, 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 his, in the incarnation, the way He comes. He's unique in this, this, this glory that is His and He displays. And then thirdly, why is Jesus unique? And we see it in here is that Jesus holds the patent on preeminence. Verse 15. It seems to be, and even as, and if, you have, if you're using the ESV, I'm not, I didn't consult other translations, but in, in the ESV it's put in parentheses, verse 15, and so it seems to be this, and there, are, there were no parentheses in the Greek text, that's uh, English, uh, just help for us to, to use the punctuation like we find, and, and it's a good thing, but, but it seems to be that verse 15 is this kind of inspired parenthetical remark from from John that it's you can read straight from verse 14 to verse 16 and you and you don't miss a beat. That's what I mean by that. It's parenthetical, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant it, in fact, John's witness and John's testimony is critical to the prologue. We saw this last week and and the very next place he's going to go in verse 19 and following, he's going to go back to John. So I, this is by design, but there's John This. Witness verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John, this this witness of the true light, Jesus Christ, his message was all about Jesus and he bears witness. He cries out concerning Jesus, he who comes after me ranks before me. Now, John was six months older than Jesus was. We know that from Luke's account. And he begins his public ministry before Jesus begins his public ministry. But John is dispelling his common cultural view in that day that the older man had greater honor than the younger one. And he's saying, Jesus is the one with the greater honor. He's the greater one. Why? Because he was before me. So Jesus came after John, but the text says he was before John. Jesus wasn't just before John, he was before Elijah, he was before David, he was before Moses, he was before Abraham, he was before anything that ever was created. He was. We saw this in John 1, in 1-1, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is preeminent because he's preexistent. But but so so Jesus Jesus, remember we said this last week, he said of John the Baptist, There's no one greater born of woman than born of women than John the Baptist. He's the greatest man who ever lived, save Jesus. And they don't compare. Jesus is far greater than John. That's what John's testimony is. We we know the testimony of Paul in Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen and nineteen. He might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is, he holds that patent. He is to have first place, as some of your translations say, in everything. Does he have first place in everything in your life? Is the truth of Jesus' preeminence the experience of your life? That's the question. Or are you trying to create a generic for Jesus? Are There other things that compete for that preeminent spot for your affections and your attention and your energy and your ambitions beyond Jesus and your trust. But Jesus, he's, he's the preeminent one. John bears his testimony to this. The fourth thing that we see of the uniqueness of Jesus is that he is the fountainhead of grace. The fountainhead of grace. A fountainhead is that beginning of a stream or river. Where it all starts. And Jesus is the single source. From which all grace flows to us. It's all from Him. Verse 16. Four, from His fullness. Not His kind of limited supply, but from His overflowing abundance, superabundance, fullness. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We live, we stand, we exist downstream of this river of grace that flows from Jesus Christ. And it's from His fullness, again, Colossians 2.9, In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's this infinite fullness, the very fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And it's from that fullness that we've all received, he says, grace upon grace. Now, that is such an incredible and beautiful verse. I almost hate to even maybe possibly muddy the waters by talking about a little textual issue. But I think we need to to see it. And, and, And there are just a few comments I want to make. But there's this interpretive issue. What does that phrase grace upon grace mean? What, the, the question is, it revolves around that little preposition, upon, as it's translated in the ESV, upon. It's in the Greek, it's "anti" or ante. But it means one thing is replaced by another, or to put one thing in the place of another. And so many commentators take this in light of verse 17 to mean something like this, that the grace of the law was replaced by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so again, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That is, I mean, that is a possible meaning. I don't think that it's necessary to say that. I don't think that, to me, that is, the language is more subtle and, it, and it's a forced Forced interpretation, uh, one of the main lexicons that most every Greek student uses. Uh, he says, of, on, he comments specifically on the context of John one sixteen. In this little preposition, he says it means the grace pours forth in ever new streams. It's, it's the fount- Jesus, is a fountainhead of grace that just just goes and goes and goes. One commentator said in that same vein that this preposition here denotes a perpetual and rapid succession of blessings as though there were no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the next. And so when you add that to the idea of, of what he said of it's all from Jesus' fullness for, at the very least just John wants us to see this, that, that in Christ we get so much grace. All we will ever need, this inexhaustible supply from Christ, through Christ and from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. And just a couple implications of what what that means for us then. First one is this, is that we can be satisfied in Christ because of the abundant supply of grace he gives. He's enough, church. Jesus is enough. We don't have to lack anything if we draw on His fullness. You will never go to Jesus and drink of Him and leave unsatisfied. A second implication then, the other side of that is, that it is absolutely pointless and vain to look to anything or anyone other than Christ for that satisfaction and grace. It's easy when problems come up and trouble comes in our life that we want to turn to other things than Christ and for relief, for help, for comfort. And so we look to alcohol, we look to medication, or we look to shopping or we look to food or we look to entertainment or whatever it is for you. Distractions. But Jesus, from his fullness, we have grace upon grace upon grace. Drink deeply of Christ and be satisfied in him. That's easy to say. i realize that. It's another thing to experience that. Maybe you're thinking, I've tried that. I've tried relying upon Christ. I've tried relying upon His grace. But my problems didn't go away. Paul, the Apostle Paul knew something of that. The thorn in the flesh, this trouble in his life, this problem in his life. He tried it too and the problems didn't go away for him. And yet this is when the Lord told him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is the Lord's promise to him. My grace is sufficient for you. My my power is made perfect in weakness. After Paul prayed three times that God would remove this from his life. Jesus says, my grace is enough. It's enough. It will always be enough. The greatest need in your life right now is not the absence of some problem or problems in your life. The greatest greatest need in your life is the presence of and the experience of Jesus and His grace. That's what we need more than anything else. That's true for every single person in this room. And what we need most, God gives us through Christ in never-ending supply. Fifth thing that makes Jesus so unique. Two more. That Jesus is the climax of revelation. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There was. I, I would agree with what. I, I, I'm, the interpretation. I don't take of verse 16. But I would agree that there is grace in the law. That the law was not an, an, a, an enemy of ours. That That Moses was a gift to Israel. The law was was to be loved, was to be clung to. And and and, and, and psalmist says it's more precious than gold, and that's true. It was a gift from God, but John's saying if you thought God's gift of law through Moses was great, and it was, he's given us a greater gift now through Jesus Christ. We have this grace and truth are now ours. The law is good, but it cannot make us right with God. Proves our guilt. It makes us accountable before God. Romans 3.19. It gives us personal knowledge of sin. Verse 20. It shows us that we deserve God's wrath. Romans 4.15. And so it's useful in those ways. It points us to Christ. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ. But it can never justify a single sinner. We need the gospel. We need grace and truth to come to us in Jesus Christ. And, And God's grace and truth reach their apex at the cross of Christ. That God's truth, it demanded that the penalty for sin be paid and paid in full. And yet His grace provided Jesus, the eternal Son of God, as the payment for that sin, the payment that was required for sin for all who believe in Him. And I would just say to you, if you've not, if you've not received God's gift of eternal life, if you don't know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not put your trust in Him, I beg you to do that today, and you can know life, eternal life, abundant life in Christ, trusting in Jesus as your sin bearer. Now, just a, a, an observation and, and a note before we move to the last thing the, in verse seventeen. This is the this is the first time that John actually uses the human name. Jesus, or his designation as Christ, Messiah. He uses, he, he uses Jesus 237 times in his gospel account. That's more than any other gospel, more than a quarter of all of the New Testament, uh, uses. He also uses Christ more than any other, uh, gospel writer, though he only uses Jesus Christ together one more time, and that'll be in chapter 17. But, but this eternal, I'm just saying, this eternal word made flesh, we've been, we know who it was, we know who it is from verse 1, but he has a name and it's Jesus Christ and that's who he's going to, um, he's going to give and explain to us throughout the rest of, of this book. He's the only one. And the last thing I'll we'll say, the last thing that makes Jesus unique is Jesus is the only one who has seen the only God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, at first glance, this verse kind of seems to just drop out of nowhere. Like, well, how, how does this, where does this connect? Why would John so abruptly bring up the fact that no one has seen God? Well, a couple of reasons. One, remember that the context that we were talking about of Exodus 33 and 34. If that's the backdrop of these verses, when Moses asked if if if. God to show him his glory, God responded that no man has ever seen God and lived. And so that's that's part of it. But also just in the text of in this prologue of John, the first 18 verses here, you have verse one and verse 18 that bracket this section and 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 what he's saying in both of these verses is that we cannot know the invisible God unless he reveals himself to us, which he's done in the word. He's calling Jesus the word. Jesus, the word who is the one and only son of God, the word who was with God, verse one at the father's side, verse 18. Same thing, just a different way of saying it. He has made him known to us. So he's he's putting that together. And so verse 18, just like verse one of John one, it's affirming Jesus deity and yet distinguishing him from the father. And so he is the eternal son of God. He is always in intimate relationship with the eternal father. At the Father's side or in the bosom of the father. Some of your translations may say it points to this close unbroken fellowship that the father has with the son. And this will be seen again clearly in John 17. And it's also what makes what Jesus says on the cross so much more dark and real. Shows us the horror of the cross. That when Jesus bore our sins, He cried out, "My God, My God, why have You forsaken me?" And Jesus, who has for eternity known nothing but unhindered, unbroken fellowship with the Father, in some sense experience, experiences the forsakenness of God on the cross. He is. this Jesus has made known God he has explained him this is where we get our word exegete exegesis this is this is parallel again to the word verse one that the unseen you cannot know an unseen thought unless it's explained and you cannot know God who is unseen unless the word reveals him to us And so the only way we know the Father is through Jesus' Son. Jesus will later say, John 6.46, that not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. And in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We have a unique Savior. There is no one like Jesus. No one. And we come to this table... And we remember the uniqueness of our Savior. He's one of a kind. And more specifically, remember His one of a kind death. His once and for all death in our place for our sins. Jesus told His disciples on the night before His death, He says, Remember, remember me. Remember my body was broken for you as you eat. Remember my blood was spilt for you as you drink the cup. That Jesus is like no other, and his death is like was like no other. It was entirely unique. In Hebrews chapter ten, verse four, the writer of Hebrews says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's 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 no other there's no other blood that could be shed that could take away sin. And then he goes on a few verses later to say it's only through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all.